The reading is from Exodus 28, reading the whole chapter. Have Aaron, your brother, brought to you from among the Israelites, along with his sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, so that they may serve me as priests. Make sacred garments for your brother Aaron to give him dignity and honour. Tell all the skilled workers to whom I've given wisdom in such matters that they are to make garments for Aaron for his consecration so he may serve me as a priest. These are the garments that are to make. A a breastpiece, an ephod, a robe, a woven tunic, a turban and a sash, Aaron and his sons, so that they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue, purple, scarlet yarn and fine linen. Make the ephod of gold and of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen, the work of skilled hands. It is to have two shoulder pieces attached to two of its corners so it can be fastened. Its skillfully woven waistband is to be like it of one piece with the ephod and made with gold, with blue and purple and scarlet yarn and with finely twisted linen. Take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel in the order of their birth, six names on one stone and the remaining six on the other. Engrave the names of the sons of Israel on the two stones the way a gem cutter engraves a seal. Then mount the stones in gold filigree setting and fasten them on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel. Aaron is to bear the names on his shoulder as a memorial before the Lord. Make gold filigree settings and two braided chains of pure gold like a rope and attach a chain to the setting. Fashion a breastpiece for making decisions, the work of skilled hands. Make it like the ephod of gold and of blue and purple and scarlet yarn and of finely twisted linen. It is to be square, a span long and a span wide and folded double. Then mount four rows of precious stone on it. The first row shall be carnelian, chrysolite, beryl. The second row shall be turquoise, lapis lazuli and emerald. The third row shall be jacinth, agate and amethyst. The fourth row shall be topaz, onyx and jasper. Mount them in gold filigree settings. There are to be twelve stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the twelve tribes. Continuing from verse 22. Make two gold rings for it and fasten them to the two corners of the breastpiece. Fasten the two gold chains to the rings at the corners of the breastpiece and the other ends of the chains to the two settings, attaching them to the shoulder pieces of the ephod at the front. Make two gold rings and attach them to the other two corners of the breastpiece on the inside edge next to the ephod. Make two more gold rings and attach them to the bottom of the shoulder pieces on the front of the ephod close to the seam just above the waistband of the ephod. The rings of the breast pieces are to be tied to the rings of the ephod with blue cord, connecting it to the waistband, 
so that the breastpiece will not swing out from the ephod. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastpiece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. Also put the Urim and the Thummim in the breastpiece, so that they may be over Aaron's heart whenever he enters the presence of the Lord. Thus Aaron will always bear the means of making decisions for the Israelites over his heart before the Lord. Make the robe of the ephod entirely of blue cloth, with an opening for the head in its centre. There shall be a woven edge like a collar around this opening, so that it will not tear. Make pomegranates of blue, purple and scarlet yarn around the hem of the robe, with gold bells between them. The gold bells and the pomegranates are to alternate around the hem of the robe. Aaron must wear it when he ministers. The sound of the bell will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord, and when he comes out, so that he will not die. Make a plate of pure gold, and engrave on it as a seal, holy to the Lord. Fasten a blue cord to it, to attach it to the turban. It is to be on the front of the turban. It will be on Aaron's forehead, and he will bear the guilt involved in the sacred gifts the Israelites consecrate, whatever their gifts may be. It will be on Aaron's forehead continually, so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Weave the tunic of fine linen and make the turban of fine linen. The sash is to be the work of an embroiderer. Make tunics, sashes and caps for Aaron's sons to give them dignity and honour. After you put these clothes on your brother Aaron and his sons, anoint and ordain them. Consecrate them so that they may serve me as priests. Make linen undergarments as a covering for the body, reaching from the waist to the thigh. Aaron and his sons must wear them whenever they enter the tent of meeting or approach the altar to minster in the holy place, so that they will not incur guilt and die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants. I imagine uh, most of us watched some or maybe all of the king's coronation. 6th of May last year. It was colourful, wasn't it? It was magnificent. Um, It was steeped in history. And if you're like me, then much of the relevance of the swords and the swapping and the changes in the clothes and the ceremony was lost. Certainly was lost on me. Um, Well done, Penny Mordred, for holding that sword for so long. Um, And much of the historical significance is perhaps no longer relevant to us in the 21st century. But it didn't really matter, did it? Because uh, we could just sit back and enjoy the spectacle. Maybe that's our response when we read something like this passage in Exodus 28. It seems packed with detail and description, which clearly had some significance for the people of Israel in this time of salvation history, 
But to us, in 21st century, Christians now, much of that significance has maybe been lost or we just think is irrelevant. As you can imagine, I trust that's not going to be our feeling tonight as we look through this together and consider the garments that God instructs the priests to wear. And I trust that we will see, as we look at it under four headings, that they are a wonderful picture looking forward to Jesus, a priest for God's people. So first, we are going to see that the priests were dressed to impress. They were dressed to impress. We're going to look here at the first verses 1 to 5, where we're introduced to the next task that God has given Moses to do. Uh, The instructions for the tabernacle, the dwelling place, has been given, and the altar, as we've seen in previous weeks. And now God gives clear, very detailed instructions of how to prepare clothes for the priest to wear. We read in verses 4 and 5 about the individual items. And I do have a picture which might be helpful or may not. But here we go. Next slide. So working from the top down, just to give you an idea of how it all fits together. Moses was commanded to make a turban with a gold plate. An ephod, uh, think of that like a tabard, okay, with two onyx stones on the shoulders, a sash to tie it on with, and then over that a breast piece which had those four rows of precious stones. Underneath that was that blue robe with bells and pomegranates. And then underneath that was a tunic and undergarments. Okay. In verse 5, we read about the materials that were to be made. Have you heard this anywhere before, if you've been with us in previous weeks? Make them use gold and blue, purple and scarlet yarn and fine linen. If you've got a Bible, turn back to chapter 26, verse 31. When it talks about making the tabernacle, make a curtain of blue, purple and scarlet yarn and finely twisted linen with cherubim woven into it by a skilled worker. These garments were to be made using the same materials, the same colours, by the same skilled craftsman as used to make the tabernacle. And the message, I think, is clear. Aaron is wearing these clothes, and he is part of the tabernacle. His service is linked to the dwelling place of God. Look at how these garments are actually described in in verse 2. We're told, um, well, Moses is told, make sacred garments, or could be translated garments set apart. So these are to signify holiness of the duty that's involved. They were to give him dignity or glory. They were to show the weighty importance of the role. And not only dignity, but honour or, some translations, beauty. These were wonderful, beautiful garments. They were designed to impress and instill in everyone who saw them, priest. Now, hopefully that picture we saw might have been useful, 
But of course, the danger of showing a picture is that's all you think about. So I want you to forget that picture. Or maybe take the picture and magnify its beauty by a factor of 10. Okay? Because it was impressive. Imagine as the priest walked towards the tabernacle, you would get the sight of him and the, the gold thread woven into that rich blue, purple, scarlet cloth, and it would glisten. And then as he turned to face you, the multicolored precious stones on his chest would dazzle and shine in the light. It would have been a glorious, beautiful, most impressive sight. And I think this is the first way in which these garments remind us and point us to a quality of that greater high priest. These garments point to Jesus, our high priest, who's described for us in in Hebrews. And they point out that Christ is the most impressive person in history. There are some very impressive people out there, aren't there? Some very impressive people who seem to be able to do wonderful things in wonderful ways. And I wonder whether you have people who you perhaps idolise. Young people here this morning, who do you look to and think they're impressive? They are impressive. Adults, who do we look to and think, That's an impressive person. The other Christmas, I was given an autobiography, I won't mention his name, of a musician, someone I think would claim to be a Christian, but he's from one of the biggest bands who have uh, been playing over the last few decades. Growing up, he was a little bit of a hero of mine, and I listened to lots of this band's music, and Jan, bless her, has to uh, put up with it still when we're driving in the car. It's not her cup of tea. Um, so as I got this book, I was eager to read about his life. And then a disturbing realisation came over me. I'm going to be disappointed by something I read. He's going to do something, or he's going to say something, or he's going to share something about his core beliefs that's going to shock and disappoint me. And I'm not sure I want to read it. And that is the same for each and every person who we idolise in this world, isn't it? They will disappoint. At some point, they will do something, say something, or share something of their core beliefs, and it will disappoint us. Not Jesus. Christ Jesus will never disappoint Can I read you this this quote from something called The Incomparable Christ? More than 1,900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the border of the country in which he lived, and that was during his exile in childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous and had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked on the waves as a pavement and hushed the sea to sleep. 
he healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his services. He never wrote a book. And yet perhaps all the libraries of the world could not hold the books that had been written about him. He never wrote a song. And yet he's furnished the theme for more songs than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college. But all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army or drafted a soldier or fired a gun, and yet no leader ever had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack arms and surrender without a, fire, a shot fired. He never practiced psychiatry, and yet he's healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. Once each week, multitudes congregate at worshipping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past, proud statesmen of Greece and Rome, have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers, theologians, have come and gone. But the name of this man multiplies more and more. Though time has spread 1,900 years between the people of this generation and the mockers at his crucifixion, he still lives. His enemies could not destroy him, and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils, as the risen, personal Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Christ is the most impressive person in all of history. Secondly, we see that the priests were dressed for protection. Here we're looking at the robe and the turban. So, not only was the effect to impress, um, but each element here has a deep and a helpful significance to us. Look back at verses 31 to 38, if you've got your Bible there. There are lots of details here about the pattern and the design of the robe. And some elements, perhaps like the pomegranates, attached as like bobbles there, don't seem to have much significance other than to, to decorate. Maybe you disagree, come and tell me afterwards, but I don't think they have much significance for us. But I think the interesting part is the description of the golden bells. They were to be attached around the hem, alternating with the pomegranates. And verse 35 says, Aaron must wear it when he ministers. It was important, he must wear it. The bells were important, as we discover in the rest of that verse. The sound of the bells will be heard when he enters the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out, so that he will not die. That's interesting, isn't it? The bells are there so that he will not die. Somehow the sound of the bells would keep Aaron alive. They were for his protection. They would be heard and he would live. So heard by who? Was the sound of the bells for God's people? So 
Some Bible writers would suggest that they were and that the people of God would hear the bells as Aaron moved around the tabernacle so that they would know he was alive. By implication, they would know that their sacrifice was accepted. Or was the sound for God? But does God need to hear bells as some sort of early warning system to know that Aaron's about to enter the tabernacle? I think rather the bells were there as an audible reminder to the people that you cannot enter into God's presence without protection. To do otherwise would result in death. For how can a sinful person come close to a holy God and expect to live? Then look at the details of the turban. Uh, Moses was instructed to do this in, uh, make this in verses 36 to 38. And there's some similarities here about the bells and the robe. It said they were to be worn so that he will not die. And in verse 38, the turban with the engraved golden plate reading holy to the Lord was to be worn so that they will be acceptable to the Lord. Both carry a similar idea to be accepted by the Lord, to live in his presence. The priest must draw near, dressed for protection. Bells on the robe, on his head, the plate bearing the words, holy to the Lord. The inscription draws attention to the fact that the one bearing the gifts, the one performing the sacrifices, this one is set apart holy to God, the one appointed by God, and so the one accepted by him. To be dressed in these garments showed that the priest was coming to God in the way that was instructed, and so this gave him protection from a holy God. For to come into the presence of a holy God in any other way would be foolish. Friends, Christ Jesus is our high priest who is our protection. He's the only person who is truly holy, the only one who can enter God's presence. He's the one who has deflected God's rightful anger at our sin. And in taking the punishment for sin, makes us acceptable to God. Christ is our protection. Can I ask you this evening, how do you suppose you will come into God's presence on that day when your life comes to an end? Now, that may be several years, decades in the future, or it may be quite soon when my life, your life, comes to an end. But the question is important, isn't it? How will you come into God's presence on that day? Do we imagine that it's possible for a sinful person to meet a holy God unprotected on the day of our death? We've heard a lot, haven't we, in the uh, 
past few weeks about the possibility of the loss of steel making in Port Talbot in Wales. And I think there might, there you go, there's a picture there. And, and how the blast furnaces might be shut down and no more steel we made in the UK. It got me thinking about what sort of job that is and what the working conditions are. So I did a little bit of research. Apparently, in the steel mill, the temperature in some places can be 650 degrees C. If you're actually working at the blast furnace, the temperatures will go up and can be at times up to 1,500 degrees C. And it's not just the heat that's a danger, but there's the possibility of splashed molten metal. In those conditions, you are going to make sure that you are protected. You're not going to rock up to work in jeans and a T-shirt. But you're going to take advantage of all the specialist clothing for working in those conditions. The protective clothing worn by the high priest when he entered the presence of God is a reminder to us of the holiness of God. And it also points to the true, our true high priest, who has willingly taken upon himself all the heat of God's punishment for our sin. Jesus is the saviour of sinful people. He is our protection and refuge. Just have a look at these two verses from Psalms. First Psalm 5. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Jesus, the most Remarkable person who ever lived is also the God who takes away the sin of his people. And in him we find refuge and protection. Next uh, we see the priests were dressed for wisdom. And this is uh, an interesting part of uh, the passage in chapter 28. Because Moses was instructed to make a breast piece. Uh, This was a rectangular piece of material. It was folded in half, so it formed a pocket or a pouch. And it was worn on the chest of the priest over the ephod. And into this pouch was placed the urim and the thummim. Most Bible scholars agree that those two words, urim and thummim, stand for light and perfection. However, virtually Everything else about those two objects, if indeed they were two objects, is not known to us. You might imagine there's much speculation, there's much guesswork about what they were and how they might be used. So some people would suggest there's two stones, a light one and a dark one, and the priest would roll the stones like dice. Some would say, no, it's a collection of stones, light and dark stones, and the priest would put his hand into the pouch and pull out the stones and see how many light ones or dark ones he's got. Well, we don't know. 
All we do know is somehow, in some way, God used them to help his people make decisions in times of national crisis. I think the most helpful passage is this one in, uh, in Numbers 27, where um, uh, the Lord is giving instructions to Moses as he hands over the leadership to Joshua and says, So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, son of Nun, a man in whom the spirit of leadership is, and lay your hand on him. Make him stand before Eleazar, the priest, and the entire assembly, and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so that the whole Israelite community will obey him. He is to stand before Eleazar, the priest, who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, <clears throat> he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out, and at his command, they will come in. So, they were definitely used to obtain decisions. Joshua, and we can assume Moses, would go to the priest, maybe at a time of national crisis or critical decision, and the leader of God's people would ask the high priest to inquire of the Urim and Thummim to know God's mind. Does that sound appealing? To be able to know God's mind in a moment? It sounds fairly appealing, doesn't it? Maybe that's why some will take a Bible, their Bible, and will flick open to a page and point to a verse and say, that's God's message for me today. That's what he's saying to me. That's God's mind. Or maybe that's why some would go to church leaders and say, can you tell me what to do? Give me some direct wisdom in this situation. Tell me what I'm going to do, and I will do it. And yet God has not arranged our spiritual lives to be led in this way, has he? How do we know that? First, we're not told anything about the Urim and Thummim. And I think that's significant, isn't it? Look at all the other detail for everything else. We're told so much detail, but nothing about them. So we shouldn't be thinking about them in that way. And this knowing way of knowing God's mind is part of the Old Covenant, a way he used to lead a nation. It was never used to answer personal questions, to help in the decision-making of even families or groups within God's community. Look at uh, Hebrews, I think it's coming up on the screen, chapter 8, uh, verse 6 and 7. But, in fact, the ministry of Jesus ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is a mediator is superior to the old one since the new covenant is established on better promises for if there'd been nothing wrong with that first covenant no place would be sought for the other it's part of the old covenant and we are part of the new covenant which is built on better promises. But actually, I think the Urim and Thummim serve a much greater purpose to us than just merely a tantalizing imagination for what they might do. They point us directly to Christ. They point us to a better covenant established on better principles, 
because it is in Christ that we, in these last days, find our wisdom. For it is in Christ that God has made himself known. God's mind, his revelations, are all centered around Christ and come to us through Christ, the one who is light and perfection, Arim and Thummim, the one who is the light of the world. And from him we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit who leads us into all truth. Look at these verses from Hebrews 8, verse 10. This is the covenant I will establish with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbours or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. We're living in the time of God's new covenant with his people, a time when his laws and the knowledge of him are not written on the heart of a high priest by the Urim and Thummim, but are written, God's laws and the knowledge of him are written in our minds and on our hearts through Christ Jesus. Dressed for wisdom. Lastly, uh, and fourthly, we see that the priest's garments were there dressed to represent. And here we're looking at the ephod and the breast piece. The ephod was that sleeveless tunic that went over the robe and the undergarments. And the breast piece, as we said before, was that square pouch attached to the ephod. The ephod, unlike the robe, was entirely, uh, which was entirely blue, sorry, the, the ephod was brightly coloured. So it was made with gold, blue, purple, scarlet, yarn. But I think the most important feature was the shoulder pieces. Do you remember what it said and what we read about them? On each shoulder was a precious onyx stone. And on each stone was engraved by a gem cutter to carry the names of six of the tribes of Israel on each side. So, the priest enters the tabernacle carrying on his shoulders the names of all of the tribes of Israel. Every person in every family which made up that community of God's people had their names on the shoulder of the priest. Each person represented by him as he entered God's dwelling place. The meaning seems to be that at this, as the high priest went into the tabernacle to perform sacrifices, to present gifts to God, he was representing each person in God's community. It seems to signify the weight or the burden of carrying their guilt into God's presence on their behalf. But then there was another way in which the priest carried the names of each of the tribes. Because on the breastpiece, it was made up of four rows 
of three precious stones, 12 in all, and on each stone was written one name of one of the tribes. A bright, dazzling, precious stone for each tribe. And the reason that it was worn over the priest's chest, we read in verse 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breastplate of decision as a continual memorial before the Lord. Aaron was carrying the names of all God's people written on precious stones over his heart each time he entered God's presence as a reminder. Isn't that a lovely picture of our saviour? In Hebrews 7, which Tim chose for us earlier, verse 23 reads, Now there have been many uh, of those priests since death prevented from continuing office, but because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Again, we're pointed to Jesus. Christ Jesus is our heavenly representative. Through him, we can enter into the presence of God. He has carried the weight of our guilt upon himself once and for all. He alone is able to take all of my sin upon himself. He alone is able to bear the weight of God's punishment for my sin. He alone is able to declare that once and for all time it is dealt with. I never need to doubt whether my sins are forgiven. But also it points out that Christ loves us. It points out to the fact that we are precious to him. Like the names written on those precious stones on the breastpiece, Jesus holds your name, Christian, my name, close to his heart. His thoughts towards you are those of care and love and tenderness. His will for you is your eternal good, and he forever intercedes for you. This means that Jesus, who lives forever, who has that permanent priesthood, always lives to intercede on our behalf, always pleading my cause before a holy God, always ensuring that God's punishment for sin is turned away from us onto him. This is the act of our heavenly high priest. Just as we close then, we see that Christ, the heavenly high priest, is our impressive high priest. There's no one like him. He is our protection. He is our wisdom and he is our 
representative before a holy God.